0: Section 7 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5, Somerset and York, Part 1. Henry Sixth was not a strong man, either in physique or in character, although in many respects he was one of the most attractive of the English kings. In piety, kindliness, and generosity, he is to be compared with another saint on the throne, Louis the of France, by the Roman Catholic Church, he is held to be a martyr, and as such has been canonized. Throughout his life, although not wise, he was a consistently good man, and nothing evil has ever been reported of him. He had been well brought up by his mother, Catherine of France, and by the Duke of Exeter, and afterwards by his governor, the trustworthy Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, whose duties were defined by the Council. This ordinance of the council is a very interesting document, couched like all the ordinances in the first person, as if the little six year old king was speaking. Henry, etc., to his chancellor, greeting. Whereas it is expedient and convenient to our youth that we be taught and learned in good manners, literature, language, nurture, and courtesy, and other virtues, and learning suitable to the royal person, in order that we may be the better able to hold and govern ourself in the preservation of our honour and estates when we come through the grace of God to greater age, we, with the advice and assent, etc have chosen the Earl of Warwick. The tutor's task was well performed, and young Henry grew up in all piety and learning, a simple, quiet man. He came of a clever family but not a very healthy one. So, as a boy, he was precocious and quick to learn. Being probably of a nervous temperament, he ought to have been kept back and not allowed to learn quickly, but the exigencies of state led the council to bring him early into public life. At the age of four, he was brought to the high altar at St. Paul's, led by the hand between the great Duke of Bedford and the Duke of Exeter, and after the ceremony he was placed on the back of a courser and paraded through the streets of the city. Although he learned to hunt and hawk a little, he was always serious and precocious. This was the worst thing for a boy whose family history on both sides was so ominous. His paternal grandfather, Henry IV, had suffered from general weakness and a chronic skin condition, probably due to the excesses of John of Gaunt. His maternal grandfather, Charles VI of France, had suffered from severe though intermittent madness. Thus, starting with a bad chance, Henry was doubly unfortunate in being thrown into a period which would have taxed the sanity of the most level headed of monarchs. He was ruling a country where everything seemed to be going from bad to worse. Abroad there was war, at home, quarrelling in the council, disputes in the palace, and rebellion in the country. Gentle and compliant as he was by nature, he must have suffered fearfully from the interested advice and requests of his courtiers. The income of the crown on which he charged the public service of the state was impoverished by his generosity, so that the soldiers were unpaid and justice left to itself was openly bought and sold. Considering the poverty of the crown, it is wonderful that Henry was able to do so much for his foundations at Eton in 1440 and Cambridge in 1441. It is agreed that he showed much skill in buying up parcels of land to help the endowments of Eton and King's Colleges. As a man, he was tall and spare. His picture shows him with a sweet, gentle expression on his face and his hands lightly clasped. Unable to make out all the rights and wrongs of the factions between which he was torn, he allowed himself to be led passively by his handsome, spirited, and strong-willed wife he used to complain of the noise made in the palace, so that he could scarcely read his books of devotion day or night. When more than usually tried or irritated, he would say forsooth, forsooth, but no oath was ever heard to pass his lips. Henry was entirely faithful to his friends, and in some ways this excellent quality brought him into trouble. The Lancastrian dynasty had originally justified itself as providing the country with constitutional monarchy— one which, as contrasted with the absolutism of Richard II, would defer to the wishes of the nation. Thus Henry IV had chosen his ministers and councils subject to the approval of Parliament. Between Henry V and his Parliament, complete accord seems to have prevailed. But with Henry VI, in some ways the most gentle and compliant of his family, a new system began. As soon as he was capable of managing his affairs he began choosing his ministers and counselors without reference to Parliament, and so, to some extent, he came under the old and disastrous charge of favoritism. He was said to keep in power men whom the people or Parliament disliked. This was not exactly favoritism, for a favorite is usually taken to mean someone promoted to high position without having served a long and regular training in subordinate positions. But the ministers that Henry clung to so persistently were all tried men. Cardinal Kemp was an experienced man, and a wise and loyal servant of the crown. The Duke of Suffolk came from a regular official family, and when he entered the council in 1431, he was already a veteran of the French War, with sixteen years' service behind him. The Duke of Somerset, too, was no quickly raised favorite, for all the Beauforts, from their boyhood, had been trained to the royal service, and Edmund himself, by the year 1450, had at any rate twenty years' service behind him. Yet although Henry's advisers were no mere favorites of a whimsical monarch, they were not such as the nation at large approved of. The complaint of Jack Cade that the Duke of York was arbitrarily excluded from the council found an echo in many honest hearts. For although a medieval king had an undoubted right to choose his own servants, who were also the ministers of state, yet that policy must be justified by success. It could only be done by a strong king who knew the right men and what was the right thing to be done, and so was content to go his own way without fear. But Henry's disregard of the wishes of his parliament was condemned by the failure of his policy. Normandy was lost, Calais itself was in great danger. The command of the sea was neglected. The finances were ruined. Public order was destroyed. The home administration was practically paralyzed. Probably England was never in a more disorganized state than when Somerset and York returned to England in 1450. Somerset, with a long record of defeat behind him, York, with a record of eminently respectable, although not brilliant, achievement. At this moment Henry the 6th stood at the parting of the ways the choice of york as chief adviser would be approved by the middle classes the powerful and prosperous traders and by a large section of the nobility it would give peace to the realm but it would mean something like the adoption of a colleague on the throne somerset on the other hand had no approval in the country no recent successes to his credit But rather the memory of failure. But his family, only semi royal in origin, had always acted as faithful dependents of the Lancastrian house and would stand or fall with it. So Somerset was chosen, the evil genius, he has been called, of the House of Lancaster. On September 11th, he was made Constable of England. Possibly Queen Margaret had a great deal to do with this. French queens have seldom been a success in England being often characterized by too much will and a desire to guide affairs in their own way. Henry VI was peculiarly amenable to such treatment, and Margaret was peculiarly able to exercise it. She was devoted to her husband and afterwards to her son, and had definite ideas with regard to government. Ever since Suffolk had brought her to England in 1445, she had identified herself with the Beaufort Party. She had been suspicious of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and after his death she had been suspicious of the Duke of York. It was apparently through the influence of herself in Suffolk that York was excluded from the council and sent to Ireland, and it was almost certainly through her influence that Somerset was appointed constable in 1450, a position which carried with it the control of all the military forces of England. Margaret was undoubtedly an autocratic woman, and as the Wars of the Roses developed, she became hardened and indeed brutal, showing the same propensity as bloodthirsty men to execute prisoners after battle. Had she not been a foreigner, her commanding qualities might have been tolerated and even popular. An episode in one of her journeys in England related in the Paston Letters reminds the reader forcibly of Queen Elizabeth. The Queen, on one occasion visiting Norwich, sent for Margaret Paston's cousin, an unmarried lady. She was much pleased with the cousin's manner, and forthwith told her to get a husband, and apparently took steps to find one. Here, in the sphere of social relations, high spirit and a somewhat autocratic attitude, if combined with kindliness and good nature, are not unattractive. But when transferred into national politics, and especially into party politics, these qualities may engender hatred. A different impression from Margaret Paston's is given of the Queen in a newsletter, written in January of the next year. The Queen hath made a bill of five articles, desiring those articles to be granted. The first demand was that she should have the whole rule of the country. The second was that she should have the appointment of the Chancellor and all chief officers of state. The third was that all bishoprics and benefices should be in her gift, the fourth was that an adequate income should be assigned to the royal family. The writer did not yet know what the fifth was, but it would seem there was nothing more for the fifth article to supply. One more defect in her character was often adverted to in her lifetime. She was believed to be greedy of money, eagerly taking a share of any lands that might fall to the crown, as, for instance, the estates of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, after his death in 1447— Yet it must be remembered that she too, like her husband, was interested in charitable foundations, being with Andrew Dockett, rector of St. Badoff's, Cambridge, the foundress and patron of Queen's College. Richard of York had a personal score to settle with Somerset, for it was to him that York felt that he owed his banishment to Ireland. In 1446, after he had kept for five years sound, sober, and wise government in Normandy, he had expected a renewal of his term of office, and in fact the council had renewed his appointment for another five years. But Somerset, who desired the appointment for himself, prevailed upon the king to annul the appointment and give it instead to himself. This, says John Withamsteed, the contemporary abbot of St. Albans, was the original cause or occasion of the Wars of the Roses. So Somerset went to Normandy with disastrous results to the English power, and York was given the lieutenancy of Ireland as a place of honorable banishment. And now Somerset, after an uninterrupted series of defeats, was back in England, with the high office of constable controlling the military forces of the crown, chief man at the council table. Yet he was hated by the people at large, while York was almost universally looked up to as the one man who could save the kingdom. The characters of these two men are interesting, Somerset was not entirely bad. York was by no means wholly faultless. Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, was at this time forty six years of age, a good looking man with gentle, courteous manners and a desire to do justice in the country. Being descended in a direct line from John of Gaunt, he stood very near the throne. The Beauforts, although legitimized in 1396 and 1407, had in the latter act been debarred from the line of succession to the throne this condition of course might again have been annulled by act of parliament but there is no indication that somerset was ever tempted with this prospect he was loyal to henry the 6th before the birth of the king's son and after the birth of the prince edward he fell fighting for the royal family in the first battle of saint albans throughout all the attacks on somerset in the council or in parliament henry and the queen stood obstinately by him and made his cause their own. It is clear that they never doubted his loyalty. His character was not a great one, but he had courage, fidelity, and, as his end showed, a capacity for self sacrifice. On the other hand, he is said to have been greedy of money, and while governor of Normandy, to have stooped to acts of doubtful honesty for the accumulation of it. The charges of maladministration are to be found in an indictment against him drawn up by the Duke of York. In fourteen fifty three. Here it is said, among other things, that Somerset appropriated to himself seventy two thousand francs from the French government handed over as compensation to the Englishmen who had lost their livelihood through the cession of Anjou and Men. A contemporary historian of France, the Bishop of Lisieux, in a general way supports these charges. The charge of financial dishonesty is not proved. Under the Lancastrians, the accounts of the government at home and abroad were very badly kept, and there must have been great opportunities for peculation, especially among the subordinate officials. Salaries were, it seems, continually in arrear. A general, if he wished to keep his soldiers together, had to draw upon his private means, if he had any, to pay their wages, trusting to recover his expenses from the royal funds whenever they arrived. Thus a general had paid away from his private estate a thousand pounds to his soldiers or to the contractors for stores, might justly put into his pocket a thousand pounds which arrived six months or a year afterwards for the payment of the forces. If the accounts had been properly kept and the general's claims sent in to the government, and the monies when they arrived duly acknowledged, no question of dishonesty could have arisen. But as the accounts were usually in confusion— and as claims against the government might refer to many years back, it is no wonder that the line between legitimate recovery of sums advanced and sheer peculation was difficult to be distinguished. But one thing may be said in support of Somerset's honesty he was a rich man, having inherited great sums from his uncle, Cardinal Beaufort. Out of these riches he defrayed when he was captain of Calais between 1451 and 1453 the wages of the garrison, to the extent of 21,648 pounds, 10 shillings. In the last year, Parliament passed an act to repay these sums to him, but it is not certain that the money was ever forthcoming. It would be easier to estimate the character of Richard of York had his life been longer, but his premature death at Wakefield cut him off before his objects had been realized, and before he had been tried by the possession of full power. He was a contrast to Somerset in some ways. There is no doubt that Richard was a sound statesman and a good soldier, although perhaps fidelity was not among his most eminent qualities. He had shown himself a good governor and a good soldier in France. In Ireland his tenure of office left behind it memories and an influence which kept Ireland loyal to the Yorkist name for many a year." He saw clearly what was the evil of England, namely lack of strong impartial government, and during the few months that he was protector of the realm, in the first madness of Henry VI, he took the right measures to secure justice and order. The merchants and the middle classes were as unswerving supporters in Parliament. This is the best testimony that could be borne to the soundness of his ideas of government. He stood for justice, order, and not too much interference. The interference of the Lancastrian government with the administration of justice in the provinces is alone sufficient to condemn that government. The rebels of Jack Cade's time had called upon Richard to come and rescue England from the internal evils that were destroying it. But the court party, the party of Margaret and Somerset, made good government impossible, for the country hated them, and yet through the obstinacy or conscience of the king they were left at the head of affairs. York, the best statesman in the land, the firmest administrator and the chief prince of the blood after the king was denied office, through the meanest sword of Backstair's influence, he was kept idle with his gifts wasted. It is small wonder that he came at last, though slowly, to the conclusion that the first condition of that sad and wise government which the commons were always sighing for was to sweet boy the court party, forcibly purged the council of all elements of weakness, and put himself, with the approval of all the peaceful classes, at the direction of affairs. It is by no means certain that York aimed at the crown, especially after the birth of Henry's son. Perhaps he would have been satisfied if he had won his way by force to the position of protector during the rest of Henry's life and the minority of Prince Edward." It may be that success would have spoiled him, and that once in the position of guardian he would have proved to be but an earlier Richard III. But York was a very different man from his son Richard. His moral fiber had not been weakened by a generation of civil war. His spirit had not been soured by the consciousness of personal deformity. He had always shown great powers of self-restraint. Although he can never have forgotten that his father— Richard, Earl of Cambridge, had been executed as a traitor by Henry V, yet he appears not to have been actuated by any feelings of revenge against the Lancastrian family. It took twenty years of court intrigue against him to rouse him to arms. He had suffered in the King's service, too, for, as was the case with so many of the Lancastrian government officials, he had to do his work when he was offered it with little hope of pay." During his two years as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland he received no wages, and yet he managed to maintain an efficient rule. When he returned from Ireland in the autumn of 1450, the needy home government, instead of paying up the sums due to him, could only give him the right of exporting wool to Calais for one year free of custom dues. When Henry VI, on September eleventh, made Somerset Constable of England, he showed clearly that the old system of government was to continue, and that York was still to be excluded from the direction of affairs. By this insane act, Henry defied the whole nation. It was probably about the same time that York crossed from Ireland to Beaumaris in Wales. Finding his entry into Beaumaris resisted by royal officials, he passed on to some other point near at hand and safely effected a landing. He had left his duties— and deserted his post. But he left Ireland in a safer condition than it had been for many years, and there was plenty of work for him to do in England. York's following was augmented by accessions from his Welsh estates, and he gradually made his way toward London. A letter from one of his retainers to John Paston, dated October 6th, informs us that before this date the duke had had an audience with the king in which the affairs of state had been duly discussed. York had especially urged that all men who were accused of treason should be given a lawful trial. Indeed, the whole conversation was all upon justice, and much after the commons' desire. So York reached London, probably at the end of September, having made the journey not altogether peacefully, for, at the very last, he had to beat down the spears of the guards at Westminster Palace. In a bill or statement which he presented to Henry, Richard declared himself the king's true liegeman and servant, and Henry sent him a written reply to declare, repute, and admit you as our true and faithful subject and as our faithful cousin. Henry, moreover, promised in another letter to establish a sad and substantial council, with more ample power than he had before permitted, and that York should be one of the councillors. Further, the basis of reform was to be made as broad as possible— by the summoning of the greatest and the best, the rich and the poor. In accordance with this promise, Parliament met on November 6th to consider, as the Chancellor announced in the opening speech, three things the defence of the realm, the defence of the king's subjects in Guienne, and the settling of disorder at home. The Commons, at any rate, fully believed in the Duke of York. Elections in those days were often corrupt. Richard did not leave them to take their own course. The Paston letters show us that in the County of Norfolk, he and the Duke of Norfolk calmly decided beforehand on the two men who were to be elected as Knights of the Shire. It is true that only one of these two was elected, but the new candidate who was substituted was supposed to be favorable to the Duke of York. The speaker chosen by the Commons was Sir William Oldhall, one of the Duke's oldest friends and most active supporters. As Parliament was particularly invited to consider the affairs of the English in France, it was inevitable that the Duke of Somerset's conduct of the war should be inquired into. In the Middle Ages and for many years afterwards, if a minister pursued the wrong policy, he might have to submit not only to a vote of censure and the loss of office, but to a trial on a capital charge. Accordingly, the complaints of the Commons were met by Somerset's being confined at the King's order to his house in Blackfriars, December 1st. But a mob, fearing that the King might condone his faults, as he had attempted to condone those of Suffolk, broke into the house, and Somerset had to fly for his life in the barge of the Earl of Devon, his brother-in-law. The Duke of York immediately denied having had any part in this riot by proclaiming throughout the city that no man should commit disorder on pain of death. The order was duly enforced, and to show the new concord that had arisen, the king and the peers made a stately procession through the city. On December 18th, the king prorogued Parliament and went to Greenwich Palace, where he spent Christmas. He hoped that in the vacation, the question of a trial of Somerset would be forgotten. Before the year was out, he had made him captain of Calais, the greatest post under the crown. This appointment did not involve more than an occasional absence from England, and Somerset was to combine it with the position of head of the king's household. The unpopular minister was to be more in the king's confidence than ever. Parliament reassembled on January 20th, and the pressure put upon the king was at once renewed that he might dismiss his unpopular ministers. It was the commons that made the petitions to the king, but they were clearly inspired by York. One petition prayed the king to dismiss from court thirty of his most prominent supporters, including the Duke of Somerset, Alice, Duchess of Suffolk, widow of Henry's late minister, William Booth, Bishop of Coventry, and Lichfield, made Archbishop of York two years later, the Abbot of Gloucester, who had been a member of council for the last seven years, and John Lord Dudley, who later fought for the king at the First Battle of St. Albans and at Heath, Henry yielded so far as to send the less important of these people from court, but the position of Somerset remained untouched. Next, one of the members of Parliament for Bristol, a certain Thomas Young, in view of the fact that the king had no offspring, proposed that the Duke of York should be declared heir apparent. This proposal seemed innocent enough for the Duke of York, as grandson of Edmund of York and son of Anne Mortimer, would naturally, if Henry VI had no issue, be considered legitimate successor to the throne. It is likely there was no other possible candidate. If Henry refused to accept the petition, it would show that he had someone else in mind. Now Henry was the last of the line of John of Gaunt in England— Except the illegitimate branch of the Beauforts, who had been legitimated, however, by Act of Parliament, except with regard to succession to the throne. If Henry refused to accede to Young's petition, it would appear very much as if rejecting the Duke of York's hereditary claim, he was leaving a way open for Beaufort to claim the throne. There were only two Beauforts who could be meant Somerset or the Lady Margaret, daughter of his dead elder brother John. Henry rejected the petition. He knew that Somerset was an unsuccessful, unpopular minister. He knew that the country as a whole earnestly desired him to have no power over the affairs of government. Yet he not merely refused to dismiss Somerset from the council, but even seemed to point him out as a likely successor to the throne in preference to the Duke of York. It was perhaps at this point that people began to consider it necessary not merely to change the ministry but to change the dynasty. Such were the consequences of Henry's act in rejecting Young's petition. He himself, however, in all likelihood, did not mean definitely to deny York's title to the throne in the event of the king's dying without issue, or to recognize any claim on the part of Somerset. Henry's object was probably only to prevent a situation which would compel him to accept York as his chief minister. If York had been declared heir, His claims to a high position in the government during Henry's lifetime could not have been disregarded. But Henry and Queen Margaret were afraid of York, and were determined to keep Somerset as their right-hand man, hence the rejection of Young's petition. Henry, of course, was acting within his rights. He might have said in justification of his action that the petition was premature and unnecessary. He and the Queen were still young and might yet have a child. This would have been a reasonable position for Henry to take up, although it would have left people uneasy with regard to his intentions toward the duke of somerset and the succession but henry went much further than rejecting young's petition he publicly condemned it and its intention in every way he could he kept somerset as much in his confidence as ever and as soon as parliament was dissolved in june he had young arrested and sent to the tower He would no doubt have arrested Young earlier, but he feared to commit such a flagrant violation of a member's privilege when Parliament was still sitting. Yet it was bad enough to arrest Young at any time, for however rash his proposal, he had said nothing that could bring him within reach of the law. The whole episode of the retention of Somerset as minister, and still more the arbitrary and illegal imprisonment of Young, showed that Henry VI was not really a constitutional monarch, yet the Lancastrian house had been originally elevated to the throne, to the exclusion of more legitimate princes, in order that England might be ruled constitutionally and given good governance. Autocratic rule may be justifiable, but it was not on any such ground that the Lancastrians could claim to rule. End of section 7.